0: The sermon this morning comes from Luke 29 through 19. And he began to tell the people this, this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him.
1: I officiated an outdoor wedding years back and it was raining right up until the start of the wedding. And as you can imagine, the bride was an absolute mess. Anxious, worried, skies cleared, the wedding went off. But uh, undoubtedly, if, you've <clears throat> if you plan an outdoor wedding, you always have that risk, but there's a solution for you. According to Oliver's Travels website, There is now a London-based luxury travel company that can guarantee good weather for an outdoor wedding. Listen to what it says. Yep, in order to ensure the most perfect of perfect days, we can now offer our consumers a cloud-bursting service that can 100% guarantee fair weather and clear skies for your wedding day. Currently available to customers organizing a destination wedding In France, the service employs the talents of pilots and meteorologists and takes over three weeks to plan and uses silver iodide to seed the clouds, essentially giving the water vapor something to condense around to produce rain that dissipates quickly. Costs start from $150,000, which is a fair old whack of cash, says the website. But then again, you can't put a price on perfection, right? Right? The company boasts success can be guaranteed. However, they also admit if a natural disaster such as a hurricane were to occur, this cannot be controlled. We are a people that are committed to control. We are a people that yearn for control, control of our environment, control of our circumstances, relentlessly committed to it. And we read a parable this morning that answers the question, how do we overcome our stubborn need for control? We're going to look at the problem of control, uh, the evidence of control and the end of control. So let's start with the problem <clears throat> of control. Look at verses nine to 10. It says, "And he began to tell this parable, "A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while." When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this was, <clears throat> this was standard practice in that day. Uh, an owner, a landowner, would plant grapevines. And after planting the grapevines, he would hire tenants or farmers or sharecroppers to work the land, to tend, to cultivate, to take care of it. And typically, it would take a grapevine four years before it would produce grapes, So the landowner would would go away and he would hire these tenants and that's exactly what we see happen here. Now here was the key. All the profits from the vineyard belonged to the owner and and the the tenants and the, the farmers would sign a contract around this that they were to tend the vineyard according to the owner's word and for the owner's profit. Now Jesus, we see in verse 19, is speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and they were very familiar with the imagery of a vineyard. In fact, Isaiah 5-7 says that Israel, Israel was God's vineyard, that Israel was God's vineyard, that God gave Israel his word, he gave Israel the law, he gave Israel his promises, the temple, and they were to tend it according to God's word and for God's profit or for his glory. But what we see with Israel's leaders throughout the Old Testament is that they began acting like owners and not tenants. Right, God's word became uh, a a, a means of privilege for them that that lifted them over other nations rather than being uh, a source of responsibility to serve others. They took the temple, right, and they used that as a means of selfish gain and power rather than a place of humility and repentance and prayer That's why right before this parable, Jesus clears the temple out, right? So they they started to act like owners and not tenants. And that's why after Jesus clears the temple right before this parable, what do they say to Jesus? On what authority are you doing this? What authority do you have to do this? In other words, they had taken the place of ownership and authority and are now questioning Jesus' authority, questioning his authority, Now, what does this, let's dial it into today. What does this mean for you? What's it mean for you? You know, it's easy to read this parable, and I think sometimes we don't don't connect because we say, how how could Israel kill so many of the prophets that were sent to them? How, How did they end up killing Jesus? Why so much opposition to Jesus? Why so much hatred? Why so much hostility? If you peel back the layers, though, we have the same posture In the same position before God. Because the problem in this parable is that they became owners rather than tenants. And it's the same problem that we have. It's the same problem. We hate the idea of a God who will not let us be in control. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, deep down, you hate the idea of a God that will not let you be in control. And we even hate the idea more of of God potentially shattering that illusion that we have of control and self-sufficiency. God's given you a mind, but he doesn't let you use it however you want. God's given you sexual desires, but he doesn't let you fulfill those however you want. God's given you power, but he doesn't let you use your power however you want. You have a mind, but you don't own it. You have sexual desires, but you don't own them, right? You have power, but you don't own it. And yet we live in a world, right, that flips it right on its head, right? The world's message is you have a mind, now go out and use it as you see fit, right? Or you have sexual desires, go out and fulfill them as you see fit. You have power, come up with your value system and exercise your power however you want. Right, owners versus tenants, On the one hand, we know we're tenants. On the other hand, we hate that we're tenants. That's what Romans chapter one, verse 18 gets at. Romans 1, 18 says, by our unrighteousness that we suppress the truth. What that means, we're suppressing the truth that we're not not owners, we're tenants. We suppress that truth. In fact, in Romans one, we see it played out. Right? They suppress the truth, and what happens? Sexual desires get fulfilled however they want to be fulfilled. And so we have this deep conflict in us. We don't want our illusion of self-sufficiency and control broken down. We don't want it shattered. Now, let's move on to, that's the problem of control. Let's move on to the evidence of control. What is the evidence of it? Look at verses 10 to 12. When the time came... He sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent away and he and he sent away empty-handed. And yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Now, what I want you to see here is that remember, it took about four years for a, a grapevine to produce grapes. So the owner goes away. After four years or so, what does he do? He sends his servants back to collect the profits that were supposed to be his. And these tenants said, no way. Because for those four years, or however long it was, they were running that vineyard according to their own ways. And the profit was theirs. And they were gonna give it to the owner. And what you notice here is the more messengers that God sends, or in the parable, the more messengers that the owner sends the more angry they get, the more hostile they get. Of course, these messengers in this parable are the metaphor of the prophets that God sent to Israel in the Old Testament. You know, the prophets were sent to Israel in the Old Testament to tell them that they weren't owners. (laughs) They didn't own the temple. They didn't own God's word. They were tenants. They were supposed to, to take care, to tend to God's word in the temple according to his word and for his profit, his glory. And they didn't do that. And so God would send prophets to say, stop. And what they do to the prophets? They killed them. Every one of them, they killed them. Why? Because they didn't want the illusion of their self-sufficiency, their control, their authority broken, shattered. The evidence of control, and you think about this in your own life, the evidence of control is anger and it's frustration that is poured out when God sends messengers, right, to free you from that. When God sends, sends gracious messengers to call you out of your self-sufficiency, out of your control so that you can become dependent on him, right, anger and frustration, right, is the, is the evidence of control. And what you see here, I say gracious call, how many messengers... Did God send, or did the, did the owner send? He sent three. Then he sent a fourth. He sent his own son. See, God, in his mercy, never gives you one chance. He, in his gracious pursuit, he sends messenger after messenger to call you out of that illusion of self-sufficiency and control so that you'll become dependent on him. Think about the messengers that God might send you. Parents, friends. Could be a church. How do you typically respond when somebody calls you out on your sin? Great, thank you so much. Wonderful. No, when somebody calls you out on your sin, what's that first impulse? Defensiveness? Frustration? Anger? Blame-shifting? Self-denial? Right, or sometimes we discredit, discredit the messenger. We'll say, well, he's sinful. How dare he call me out? So we discredit the messengers. But I I will say this. I I think probably the messenger that God sends that we most reject are what I call providential messengers. And God's providential messengers that are sent to, uh, to shatter our illusion of control are the providential messengers of hardship, of suffering, of trouble, of things not going how we want them to go. And God sends those providential messengers as a gracious act to say, I'm trying to shatter this illusion that you have, that you're in control, that you would become dependent. And it's these providential messengers that oftentimes cause people to say, if life is this hard, how can God exist? I mean, if life is really this hard, how can God exist? Life won't let you control it. Now, if, if you, maybe you're young enough, if you've controlled life to this point, just wait, okay? If life won't let you control it, then the only answer is there's another owner. And so how can it be that, that if, if life is hard, how can that be proof that God doesn't exist when life itself is telling you, screaming, there is another owner, and it's not you, right? Right? that it's God. This past Monday night, my wife and I were sitting on the, we were in the den, and uh, <clears throat> I, was, I was reading this parable, and I was reflecting on some, some commentary on it, specifically that you know, God sends messengers um, to shatter your illusion of control, to break your self-sufficiency, to, to, to call you out on acting like an owner rather than a tenant. So I'm, I'm reading this, and you need to know in the past couple months, both Kim and I have had some pretty severe health pain issues. Kim started a while back. Mine started a couple weeks ago with that sciatica leg pain, back disc issues. And, uh, and, and these health conditions have caused us to cancel our September 10-year anniversary trip. Uh, they just caused us to cancel our Thanksgiving trip up to see family in South Carolina. Cancel a, a Christmas getaway. Now, I'm not throwing a pity party, so don't give me a pity party but I'm telling you what's happening here. I was getting, I'm frustrated. I'm angry, why? Because these health conditions are keeping me from doing what I wanna do. So we're sitting in the den. I'm hunched over an ottoman, the only way I can be comfortable. Ken's sitting on the couch doing something and the TV's on in the background. TV pops, goes black. Turns out our TV died. I look at Kim, we start talking, and after a long conversation, I realize that I have been rejecting God's providential messengers. I've been rejecting it. I've been frustrated, I've been angry, because he is, he was, and is shattering my illusion of control. And I don't like it one bit. And yet he's sending these messengers. Rather than seeing this trouble and hardship as a gracious way of breaking my self-sufficiency and control, I've been viewing it as an obstruction to getting what I want. And I would have told you that I was angry at the circumstances. But deep down, I was angry and frustrated at God. I wouldn't have admitted it, but that's exactly what was going on. And so I ask you, what what messengers is God sending into your life that you're rejecting? So we've looked at the problem of control. We've looked at the evidence of control. And finally, the end of control. How do we actually overcome it? Look at verse 13, 13 to 15. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? You see, when the sun shows up, they kill him. All of that anger and all of that hostility rose up and they killed the son. They were gonna gonna tend this vineyard according to their ways and for their profit. And they weren't giving up any of the profit. And so when the owner sent his own son, they killed him. Now, this is a a parable, of course, that has all kinds of metaphors, right? The the owner, right, is God. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are God's prophets that he sends. And of course, the son is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is describing what is about to happen to him that all the hatred, the animosity against him is about to be poured out on him. You ask the question, what's the evidence of control? Here's the evidence of control. When God made himself physically vulnerable, mankind jumped him, beat him, and killed him. That's the evidence of control. That God, by his grace, is trying to break Our hearts from that illusion of control that we have. John 15, 25, which is a quote of Psalm 69, 4, says, They hated me without a cause. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. You see, sin, and this is important, sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is a whole attitude of resentment against the claims of Christ over your life. Let me say that again. Sin is a whole attitude of resentment against the claims of Christ over your life. Aldous Huxley, he's a famous, was a famous British author. And out of his book, *Ends and Means, he confessed that he did not want there to be a God or meaning because it would interfere with his sexual freedom. Now here's what he meant by that. He was a man who had a lot of intellectual problems with Christianity, but that wasn't the core of his problem. Even if he got all of his intellectual answers for the problems he had with Christianity, he he still wouldn't believe, because because to, to believe, he would lose control and wouldn't have the freedom to sleep with any woman that he wanted to. That was his real problem that the claims of Christ over his life he did not want to be a part of. There was a hostility there. And it's the hostility that we have as well. The evidence of our control is that when God came in human flesh, we beat him and killed him. Now, here's the irony, and here's where the gospel comes in. Here's the irony. The killing of Jesus that came from that hostility is the way that Jesus conquered the hostility. Right, Ephesians 2.16 says he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. And that's what Jesus means in verse 17 when he quotes from Psalm 18, 118. He says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus became hostility for you. And in becoming hostility for you, he was killed so that he could conquer the hostility and become the cornerstone. That Jesus became the enemy that you are. Jesus became the enemy that you are so that the enemy could be slain on the cross. That that's the good news of the gospel. Now, then I ask a question. How can it be dangerous to give control to the man who was broken to pieces for you. How can it be dangerous to let him shatter that illusion of control when he was broken to pieces for you? Now, how do you respond? How do you respond to what Jesus did on the cross? That he became hostility for you? That he he became the enemy for you? How do you respond to it? Jesus gives us two options here in verse 18. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here's what Jesus is saying. You either confess in this life that Jesus is Lord, thy will be done, or at the end of your life, Jesus will say to you, thy will be done. Right, Jesus, at the end of your life, if you don't confess Jesus is Lord, He's gonna to say to you, thy will be done. You want control? You wanna be boss? You wanna run your life? I will give it to you for eternity. I'll take away all my common grace. I'll take away all my goodness. It will be a horrific eternity, right? But if, if you want that, thy will be done. That's what it means to be crushed by the stone. That's what it means to be crushed by the stone. Now, the other option is to fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. To fall on the stone and be broken to pieces. To confess to Jesus, thy will be done, Jesus. Thy will be done. And then have your entire life rebuilt around the stone. To have your entire life be rebuilt around the stone. I go back to what I said earlier. How can it be dangerous to give, to give control of your life to one who was shattered for you? who has broken to pieces for you and to not willingly say, Jesus, send the messengers, I'm listening. Send the messengers, I'm listening and shatter this illusion of control and self-sufficiency because I wanna be dependent on you and I will take whatever messengers you bring, people, providential messengers to make me more dependent on you so that I can be released from this illusion of control have my life built on the cornerstone. There's a, in Japanese art and culture, there's a Japanese word, it's called uh, kintsukuroi, and it means golden repair. In Japanese art and culture, this is a, it's a type of art where they take broken pottery or shattered pottery, and they put it back together with gold so that the fractures are illuminated. And the philosophy behind it, right, is that the, the imperfections are highlighted, not disguised. Right? The idea is that, is that when, when something is damaged and has a history, that it becomes beautiful. The idea is that the, the, the true life begins when something is broken and when it appears vulnerable. And that's the gospel story. The gospel is a story of people whose illusion of control and self-sufficiency has been absolutely shattered to pieces by the one who was shattered to pieces for you, the one who was broken for you, so that the one who was broken to pieces, who is now the cornerstone, becomes the cornerstone around which you rebuild your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't let us, by your grace, Live in this illusion of self control. Father, thank you that you're faithful, and we see it in this parable of, of sending messengers, multiple messengers, out of your mercy, that we would freely have our illusion shattered, and that our life could be built around you, Jesus that we would become more of a dependent people, not a self-sufficient people. Thank you that the, the, the hostility that we have towards you, God, that we see the evidence of our anger and frustration when things start spinning out of control. Thank you, Jesus, that you took that hostility, that you took that enemy, that you became the enemy on the cross for us that we could be reconciled to you, God. And Father, I pray that we would have open ears and open hearts to say yes to the messengers you send, to not see them as obstructions to getting what we want, but to see them as gracious, gracious messengers that are shattering the illusion of control that we might become more dependent
0: on you. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.